0: All right, Exodus 19, verses 1 to 8. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, "'This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, "'and what you are to tell the people of Israel.' You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set them before all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. Uh, The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And then I think moving on to Exodus 20 verses 1 to 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But we do not have God, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning.
1: Please do head to the hub and get the talk outline for today if you would like to follow along. You'll also be able to see on the screen some of the key points that we'll hit through and attack as we get through our passage today. Um, But let's just pray. Uh, I'd love to pray for us as we open God's word now. A great Father, thank you that in your love and your kindness, you have not only rescued and redeemed us, but you show us how to live. This is hard. This is challenging and confronting to, be, to see who you are and the commands you have for your people. Father, help us to follow you faithfully, to live a holy life, not to earn your love and acceptance, but because we have it in Jesus And for anyone here who loves you and belongs to you, Father, create in us a desire for holiness and to follow you faithfully. As we open your word, speak to us, Holy Spirit. Challenge us on parts of our life that aren't right and create in us clean new hearts that only the Spirit of God can. So use this time now, these few moments, to make us more like your Son, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So up until now in the book of Exodus, we were working through it uh, chapter by chapter so far, and we now have, we've now seen so far God as the redeemer. God is the one who does whatever it takes and pays whatever cost it is to deliver his people from oppression, from Egypt and slavery, but also in the last few weeks from themselves, from their fearful, faulty, fickle, changing hearts. And then last week, in Exodus 18, we saw the beginning of what life looks like as God's people. And we learned that it's not just about redemption and provision, but this life as God's people has a mission, a purpose, to bless the other nations by telling them the epic story of Yahweh as the all-powerful God, and to be organized at the same time as they seek to live out God's intent for them. Today we come to the Hinge chapter in the book of Exodus. Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 unite the great story of redemption with the law and the commands and how to live. You notice the next few weeks as we go through Exodus, the narrative has really disappeared. There's lists and commands and laws. And the question that we're faced with and confronted with in these chapters is how do you live, how do you and me live, in a relationship with this God as his saved people? What does a community under God actually look like? And so to answer this question today, God reminds his people of his covenant, the agreement he made with Abraham, their ancestor, all those years ago, to give them three things. If you've been here for a few years, you may know the acronym LOB. What does LOB stand for? Land, offspring, and blessing. L-O-B, back from Genesis 12, LOB. That God would give them land, offspring, make them a blessing to the nations. You see, the Bible as a whole is interested in teaching us not just what is true or what to believe, but also in how to behave, how to conduct ourselves in this life as well. And for God's people, for one year now, they're going to sit here at Mount Sinai learning how to obey and worship God and what life with Him in that land as a blessing will be like. And so these chapters before us is where the experience of redemption blends in with the practice of redemptive living. And that's the big takeaway from today. What I want you to remember, among nothing else I say, would simply be this, that they are set free to live free. They are set free to live free. And the commands is what freedom looks like. The commands are what freedom for God's people look like. To say it another way, these are rules for free people to stay free. So let's unpack that. And maybe if you don't know Jesus yet, if you're here and you would not say, I'm a follower of him and I don't understand these rules and commands that are in the Bible, then today, in the next few weeks, would you join us and walk with us as we unpack them and see that they are good news? Three questions today. Who are they? Exodus 19. How are they to live? Exodus 20. And then we'll finish by asking, well, how are we to live in light of this too? How are we to live? So, who are they? They arrive at Mount Sinai three months after being saved from Egypt. Moses walks up the mountain and says, God, we're here. Your people are here. We we got here in the end. Thank you. And they don't have to wait too long for God to reply. And in verse 3 and 6, they hear this. The Lord called to Moses from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This really is the answer to the question, who are we? And God answers that in three parts. God describes the way he sees his people. And he does it by looking back by looking here and now, and by looking forward. So track with me. In verse 4, he looks back and he says, You have seen what I have done, what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings. God recalls the recent memory of what he's done for them. And he starts here because remembering their deliverance should affect them every day of their life. They are people defined by I did and I carried. carried. And he creates this wonderful word picture in their head, does he not? He says, I carried you on eagles' wings. Eagles care for the weak, and they're strong and powerful creatures as well. And that's just like God's protection and care for them too. They have Yahweh of armies standing behind them, before them, in front of them, looking after them too. Not only creating the walls of water and dominating Egypt in the plagues, but also gently providing food for them as well. But also, God is the one who carries them. Quite unlike any other God, where you have to carry that God and are dependent upon that, Yahweh God carries his people. You see, if their God is the one to carry them on eagle's wings, to redeem them from slavery and oppression, social injustice and evil, how would you respond to that? How should you respond to that? Joyful obedience. Joyful obedience to His love for them. Look at verse 5 and 6. God talks about the here and now implication. He says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, that of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Full obedience is a wonderful, fitting response to God. And God knows that their hearts are prone to wonder... And so he sets up here how attractive life with him, under him, can actually be. Urging them to the sweetness of life, in fact, with their God. They're now his nation. They're now his kingdom. That's what God's treasured possession is. The idea of royal property. They belong to him. They're not slaves in Egypt. They belong to God. Then God adds skin to the bones in this as well. Not just any kingdom. Not just any nation. Notice how he describes them. A holy nation. A kingdom of priests. This is the kind of nation and kingdom God would have his people be. It's if he's saying to them, team, this is what I see when I look at you. All my grace has done this. All my grace has redeemed you. Isn't this how you want to live now? Isn't this one of how you see yourselves too? I do hope so. You see, God is calling his people to be the in-betweeners to stand in between God and the other nations, to bring God to the people, bring people to God through mediating law and sacrifice and informing them what holiness looks like. That's what being a holy priest means. A nation, depending on faith in Yahweh, serving the others, not being powerful to then have others serve them. They're separate. Holy is, in fact, the word God uses it would be a good idea to think about holy as separate, being different. That's really the connotation that holy brings here. Don't mimic the world that I rescued you from, is what God's saying. Be different from the Egypts of the world, and that means being holy. And then there's a future aspect too, right? By living obedient as his priests, they will represent God to the other nations, like Moses did in Exodus 18. They're being called to be living proof of the living God, you see. A priestly evangelist. Because God's ultimate goal is not just one nation being rescued, but to offer salvation to all the nations and all the people groups through these people. And the very first thing God speaks to them as they gather for the very first time, this is the first time ever God's people have all been in one place. To worship God. And they gather and he tells them who they are and the mission he's calling them to. So how do they respond? Well, verse 7 and 8, very joyfully, enthusiastically, actually. Isn't this wonderful? Moses went back, summons the people. Guys, gather around. Here's what God said. And what do they say? We'll do everything the Lord has said. They're saying, we want to live under that God. We want to live under his loving, ruling care because God is good. This is life unlike anything in Egypt. You have to keep Egypt in mind as the backdrop to all of Exodus through the rest of the chapters. And then this is really interesting. Once they agree to this, the story gets a little weird. And we didn't read some of these verses out, actually. Because in verse 9, God says, Brilliant, you've agreed. I'm going to come and meet you. And that sounds really good. Let's meet this God who wants to know us. But the strange part is what has to happen to meet God. They can't just walk up the hill. They have to get ready. In short, they need to learn what it means to be a holy people, holy nation. And this is the rest of Exodus 19. God's people get ready to meet God. If I said to you, Tyson, or anyone, ScoMo's coming over for lunch today, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, I do hope that you would get your house a little bit tidy and make it fit for purpose in this sense. Or you take a wedding, for example. I went to one yesterday, and that morning, yesterday morning, I went to get a new shirt, Tasha said I had to listen to the shopkeeper. She couldn't come. She had the kids go. You take a photo of your suit, you listen to the shopkeeper, and you nod and do what they say so that you come out with a nice-looking shirt, a shirt that matches your suit, that doesn't look ridiculous. And I did, and it was a lovely shirt, and I got comments on it. I was now fit for the wedding. Or think about birthdays or formals or graduations, or actually in my graduation from college, I didn't get the memo you had to dress up. And I wore jeans and a daggy shirt. And as I walked in, I went, oh, dear. I am not fit for purpose here. And everyone had suits and ties and looked lovely and fancy. And I was just not quite right. And I felt that. It was very embarrassing. I wasn't set apart. The point is, this is what's happening here. A good setting apart, right? A difference. But a totally different level. Nothing like a wedding or a birthday or a graduation. They get to meet God and the change they need isn 't a tidy house or a new shirt; they need to be consecrated. Look at verse ten eleven. Lord said to Moses, "Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, have them wash their clothes, be ready on the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Consecrate is the idea of becoming holy, and there are some strange ideas here. This is where it gets weird. It takes three days to get holy, apparently. They have to wash their clothes. Not only that, verse 12 and 13, prescribe limits. God says, if you go up there too early, if you're too eager, you'll die. And don't let animals go up because they'll die too. Oh, and abstain from having sex and wait for a big trumpet sound too. It's really odd. Get clean to get God is what it seems to be. It's a morally eye-opening experience. For three days, they're going to think nothing else about death and sex and clean clothes. And their forefront of their thinking will be that. Perhaps the idea is that life and death are at stake when we come before God. And only those who are approved in His way will be accepted. And even His own people cannot be careless or flippant in approaching their holy God because belonging is not an excuse For not being obedient. The distinction between clean and unclean, we felt that a little bit in COVID, the idea of quarantining and have to stay away from other people. We kind of get a picture of that now. I don't think we've had that before in our culture. Anyway, the day arrives, Moses leads them out to meet God, but it's not what they expect. It isn't cups of tea and scones on the hill. Thick cloud, thunder, lightning, loud noises, smoke, fire, shaking. It's a very frightening experience. They tremble, in fact, when they see God, in verse 16. And then in verse 19, they're ready, trembling before God. He's come down to speak to them. Afraid, chosen, holy. Out of all the nations, for this moment, what will God say? Well, look at chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of their land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So if Exodus 19 is about who are they? The kingdom of priests and the holy nation. Then Exodus 20 is asking the question how am I to live? And the short answer live after the character of God. The first thing to say about these commands as famous as they are is that these are commands for people who have already been set free. As the introduction says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Not I will be if you obey me. I am already this. I have already done that. And because of that, live free. What this means is the Ten Commandments are not a burden but a blessing. They're rules for free people to stay free. Uh, Moreover, they tell us what kind of God would say these sorts of things. I mean, after what sort of God says to them, don't murder? One who values life, who wants to give life, life to the fullest, life in his community, who most shocking of all, would many years later be murdered himself, giving up his life so that we could have life, you see? So they tell us about the God behind them. And they tell us about ourselves as well. Look at the first command, you shall have no other gods. The question is, what kind of people need to be told that? People that will be prone to wander away from God. Incredible as it sounds, their hearts would want to turn back to the gods of Egypt. In two weeks' time, we will see a golden calf. Maybe you know that story. They will be tempted to abandon the God full of love and kindness speaking over them to them now. The idea of having no other gods, it carries the idea of entering into a marriage, the same word group. That is, they're exclusively and only belong to God. No open relationship with other gods or idols, please. And so we learn that the commands confront them with the reality that it's no longer Egypt that can enslave them. It's actually their own hearts. We found that out when they grumbled, didn't we? The human heart is always tempted to move away from God. Read Romans chapter 1. So what you do is at this point you think, well, what if I make an image to represent God, right? So that I don't wonder, let me fashion something that I can look at every day that says, this is what God looks like. But that's exactly what the second command says, don't do. Because Yahweh is uncreated, nothing in creation could ever represent Him justly. We can't think of God in spatial terms or created terms, because any image of God would conceal his true nature. The creation language of this command, command number two, reminds us God is different from anything else. And if you make him into a cow, you might be saying he's youthful and strong, which is very good. God is strong. But actually, you diminish his love and wisdom He diminishes mercy or holiness because cows are not that. Your iPhone is not that. Your career is nothing like that. Moreover, today, we must not think of idols as stone statues in huts. But idols can be anything that's a good thing that becomes a God thing. It could be our phones, it could be our career, it could be our family. Which means that the third commandment says to think rightly of God is to honour His name. This is is more than saying the name of Jesus when you hit your hand with a hammer. Because they belong to him, they bear his name. They are his people. It is God's name they are a testimony to, right? It is a name to be honoured, to be blessed, to be praised, to be celebrated, to be invoked, to be pronounced, to be shared. That is God's name. In Ezekiel and Malachi's day, many years later, God is grieved because his people invoke his name yet their hearts go after idols at the same time. So to treat his name lightly is to simply misrepresent God's very nature to the rest of mankind, you see. It's saying something like, I love Jesus. Yet you post or you live in a way that undermines the holiness and character of God. We see this in big things. As a whole society, we've seen this in the institutional abuse coming out in the church. We've seen that. It is undermining the name of God. It's horrendous. But it's the daily rhythm of life too, you see. As we thumb our nose secretly, you'd never say this because we're all too polite, but we thumb our nose inside at God's view of of sex or marriage or pleasure or language or words or reputation or career or the fact that he is the only God or that his word is sufficient for all things. We thumb our nose internally because we're too polite externally, you see. And this is why the Sabbath matters. The goal of the fourth command is to remember and rest, reflect under God. To remember the Sabbath makes us think back to Exodus 16, where it was first given. Every time the Sabbath command is given, by the way, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, it changes a little bit. If you compare the ten commands in Deuteronomy and Exodus, the Sabbath is the only one that changes. God builds on it every time. It's fascinating. Remember... Remembering, sorry, is what the Exodus is about. In Exodus 2, God remembered his people. That set in motion their redemption. Remembering means to act in a certain way. Like when I remember my wedding anniversary. June 30, if I woke up and said, Natasha, it's our wedding anniversary. I remembered it. And she said, brilliant, where are we going for dinner? And I said, no, 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 I just remembered it. I remembered. The thought does count. But unless the thought's accompanied with some sort of action, you haven't really remembered it. And this is the sort of remembering that God has in mind here. It's a time for them each week to intentionally pause, set the day apart as different like God has set them apart as different. Their community, their calendar, is to revolve around holy weeks, and we'll see next week holy festivals as well. So the first four commands, as we saw in the kids' talk, Order their life around God rightly, and the next six draw their attention to people and things. Make sure your relationship to things and stuff is rightly ordered under God. It's interesting, the New City Catechism, put out by the Gospel Coalition and uh, Timothy Keller, I think, it says this in one of the questions, Since the fall, sorry, ask the question, Can anyone fully obey the commands of God? And the answer they give is this since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word and deed. You see, it's tempting to read these commands and say something like, Don't steal, don't kill. And it it, it's just not that simple. Nor is that necessarily how we should understand them today as we gather. We're not at a mountain filled with smoke and fire. We are under the cross of Jesus, who rose from the dead, who made a new covenant with us. And the question is, should we obey the Ten Commandments today? Why should we obey them and not the other parts of the law, as the next chapter will tell us, and not boil a young goat in its mother's milk? And if you've done that recently, please do speak to me about why. I'd love to know. But why should we obey these and not the other parts? What's the difference? How do we understand this? And that's a good question, and we'll seek to answer it today and into next week as well. But the question I want us to think through now is how are we to live, and we'll finish here. You know, my kids who aren't here today, they love the Sally Lloyd-Jones Jesus Storybook Bible, and she's done a short devotion book as well for kids. One of their favorite stories, they call it The Petrol One. And often at breakfast you hear them say, can we have the petrol one? And I'll I'll tell it to you. Here's how it goes. What if I, what if you put porridge in a car's petrol tank? No, bad idea. And usually at this point I'd have to add something like, what if I put jelly beans and ice cream and chocolate chip cookies and, and, and fairy floss into a car's petrol tank? To which they would say, no, 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 no. How about tomato soup? No, the car won't run properly at all. Actually, it won't run at all. The Bible says if we put anything in the center of our lives except God, we won't work properly either. We're built for love and joy, not sin and tears. The Bible says only God understands the human heart and how it works best. After all, he made it. And the one who made your heart can also mend it. And I love that because I think it illustrates perfectly how we should think about the Ten Commands today. You see, it's never just about the moral external do this, get your obedience right actions. After all, when God says obey me fully in Exodus 19, he's not saying just do the right actions. Full obedience means our hearts are beating in love, and dedication to God from a place of full acceptance and full joy in what he says. Which means there's a promise in the commands too. Not just a revelation about God's character, not just a conviction about who we are as sinful people, but a promise that God will write these laws on our hearts too. That they will not just inform our behavior, but they will begin to transform us deeply from the inside out. And so we should learn them and know them and obey them. But we do so from an inside-out New Covenant approach. Let me explain. What if I were to tell you that you are, in fact, a murderer? That each of us in this room have coveted more days of our life than we care to ever admit. And if your inner lawyer is now coming out to pull out a defense against me for saying that, then you're lying and you prove my point exactly. You see, when Jesus preached the Ten, the ten Commands, he didn't just say, don't kill. He kicked it out the park. He said, if you're angry or you hate your brother, you have murdered. If you've lusted after someone, online or as they've walked past in the street, you are committing adultery. Not only is false testimony not lying about someone in court, it's actually far more reaching than that. Ever misrepresented someone at the dinner table? Or at work, thrown them under the bus? which means it's far more about words. You see, Jesus is bringing home, it's never never just about the external behavior. God isn't just interested in the physical act here. He's interested in where the actions are birthed from, live, planned. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is an idle factory, pumping them out like on a conveyor belt. You see, the message of Jesus is actually you can't obey. But he has. And only the forgiving blood of Jesus washing us clean is enough to write these laws deep in us, to produce an obedience that says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. After all, in Luke 24, Jesus says himself, all the laws are primarily about him. He came as the honest one to redeem us from the need to lie, to gain a better reputation, because in him we are accepted and treasured his people. He came and died our death, absorbing God's anger at my sin, so I don't have to give in to anger and frustration at someone else because God has forgiven all my sin. He came and honored his father and mother and God the Father as he perfectly obeyed the Father's will for us on our behalf so that we can be justified by his work, not ours. He came to bring us God's greater, deeper, eternal rest. More than just one day a week. But away from the burden of sin and death and pandemics and pain for all eternity. And this is what the New Testament writers pick up. In thinking about Jesus, Peter writes this. And it sounds like the Exodus. This is, you could, If I didn't tell you where it's from, you may think this is Exodus 19. Peter says... You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And I love this because this, this gets Exodus 19 and 20 in one verse. It carries with it the mission of God's people, being a holy nation, God's special possession for the purpose of declaring his praise. Of the one who hasn't redeemed you from Egypt, but from darkness, not going towards a land physically, but directly to God himself, his wonderful light. And then he says we're to live as God's holy nation with a passion for holiness, fully obedient to the life-giving commands of God. And because of that, we too can say, as Exodus 19 verse 8 says, when the people heard God we will do everything the Lord has said and so this week would you join me in saying I will do everything the Lord has said not to get his love or forgiveness but because I love him how are we to live with a passion for holiness and being fully obedient let's pray Our great God, thank you that your rules and commands are there for us to live free. That you've redeemed us for a life such as this. It is strange, it is different, but this is what holiness is. It is to be set apart for you. May each of us have a renewed desire to say, I will do everything the Lord has said this week. And Holy Spirit, we've recognized that our obedience is is not possible without your empowering. So Holy Spirit, create in us a clean heart, a pure heart, and we follow you and your leading in our lives, and the written word, so that we can live fully pleasing lives to you. In your name we pray.